0: Hello, I'm Eddie Temple Morris and I'm Nick Hawks. Nice to have you with us. Uh, you're about to hear episode 8 of Trailblazers and this is uh, a real special one. This is with Tony Prince who you think you might not know, but he's in with Daniel Miller or Mike Pickering, uh past guests that we've had that um you know you, you think that aren't that big, but actually when you delve into them via Trailblazers, you realize, "Oh my god, this person is absolutely massive." So they might not at first appear as big as Gary Newman or Norman Cook, who we've had before. So Tony Prince is one of those characters that everybody listening to this will have interface with Tony in some way through his starting MixMag or through the DMC uh, championships. I mean, this talk about someone who is uh, in the culture, woven into the culture of dance. This is that man. Well, absolutely.
1: I, I used to listen to... Tony Prince on the radio as a as a kid, barely into my teens when he was on Radio Luxembourg playing playing dance music, and and that was certainly some of my first exposure to to uh, to dance music. Really,
0: so, yeah, there was a beautiful moment was, actually when we recorded this, when uh, when when Nick in front of me just don't, pulled don't, out. Don't,
1: don't give it all away though. <laughs> don't give it away. <laughs> okay. let, let them listen. All right, at it. All right then. Okay right. then. You'll okay. have to you'll have to hear it. <laughs> and um, before we get started, a reminder: that you hear a lot of great. music music in this show, but it's all kind of a a taster, really, of of the music that played a key role in in Tony's development. If you want to listen to the tracks in full, Deezer.com is where you go, and you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists there from Eddie and myself and our guests. So let's begin. Deezer.
2: Deezer
0: Originals.
2: Trailblazers. Tony Prince.
0: Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva Records founder, Nick Hawkes. Together, each time, we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is a former radio DJ on the legendary Radio Luxembourg for 16 years who got to hang out with Elvis Presley, partied with Led Zepp, so if you have any questions about the world's greatest rock band, Eight Beautiful Girls and a Ring-Tailed Octopus, ask him whether they're true because he was probably there then he set up the disco (laughs) mixing championships to showcase and celebrate the art of the dj before the cult of dj ever existed this quickly became a focal point for hip-hop and breakbeat turntable wizardry and outgrew its disco roots to evolve into the dmcs that we all know and love, turning him into the undeniable Godfather of turntablism in the UK, Tony Prince. Welcome to Trailblazers. Oh, I can't live that yeah. one down. That's, <laughs> that just, that's just too much. Yeah. You could just get your coat now. Yeah, yeah, just... I'm acutely <laughs> embarrassed, and I love every minute of it. <laughs> Excellent. Flattery gets us everywhere. Yeah. Well, let me. Uh, so, welcome to Trailblazers. Yeah. And let me let me hand over to Nick as I always do to fire the first salvo. Great. Okay, Mr. Firestarter,
3: fire. <laughs>
1: well, Tony. Great to, to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So with such a rich history, what do you make of the, the shape of the music industry today? When you look at what's going on and um, what do you think? What do you make of it?
4: Oh, you know, it'd be easy to criticise the overpopulation of music and the mm. far too many ways of getting to your music. Yep. It's kind of diluted the impact of making massive hits and massive artists. Mm. Much more difficult now, although people like Simon Cowell mm. have found one way of doing it. Mm. But back in the day when I was like working radio, you could be guaranteed we had 100 million listeners a week all over Britain and greater Europe. Mm. The Iron Curtain, Scandinavia, they all listened to Radio Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. And that meant that when you were listening to Elvis in Norway, they were listening to it in Edinburgh at exactly the same time because there were no other sources for music at night. Mm. The BBC's uh, output of pop music was very limited because the Musicians' Union, you've heard that expression, uh, needle time restrictions? I have, yeah. Well, that was imparted on them by the Musicians' Union. Mm. I'll get into it later but the mm. musicians union threw me out because of mm. playing records in ballrooms. So, um, so, so
1: has it has the scene you know is it better is it worse is is it or is it just different. Do
4: you know be careful what you wish for because uh, when we were out on Radio Caroline and the pirate ships around Great Britain in 1965 6 and 7 we wanted a bigger radio network. The reason the pirates were out there was because there was nothing. In the daytime, you know, it was like, uh, you know, an oasis with no water.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then
4: at night, the water started dripping from a station in the centre of Europe, Radio Luxembourg. (laughs) (laughs) And, um... Yeah, be careful what you wish for because Mm. we've got far more than we wish for. Do you think we've got too much music
1: sloshing around now? No, I think the
4: great thing is a lot more people are able to make music now, Yeah, not just artists, you know. They can go on a computer and pick up stuff. They don't have to learn a guitar or the piano, um, although I do recommend that. (laughs) Yeah, it does help. (laughs) But they can make music now. And, uh, you know, as for radio, you know, Everybody's got a radio station if they want to have one online. You know, they have their, their uh, Facebook and their uh, iTunes and God knows S- what. So,
1: so does that mean that fundamentally the, the the original role of radio
4: is has been? I think radio, obliterated. I think radio's in big trouble. I think the, the 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 thing that radio's done that it shouldn't have done it's dumbed down the DJ. We used to have vivacious personalities, fast-moving wheelers and dealers, lots yeah. of jingles, yeah. excitement. Mm. Kenny Everett, mm. the Emperor Roscoe. Hey, buddy, how you doing out there? It was it was really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> they were larger true. than
0: life, weren't they? <laughs> yeah,
4: and they made people want to be a DJ, not only listen to them, you know. Yeah, uh, and the, uh, the radio stations learned very quickly that the best way to get mega audiences was to play the big hits mm. so they started honing down their playlists to about 20 records and they were all the cream of the crop that week mm. uh, and the DJs were told look you've got 30 seconds to talk and do that jingle we want you to be really tight now and in those circumstances it's very difficult for the DJ to bring out his personality if he's got Mm. any, you know. Mm, mm. So I think that was a big mistake on radio's part, and I've been saying recently, maybe that is going to be the saviour for radio if they allow the personality back through. Why else would a kid who's got music streaming all over his world Mm. come to a radio station? Mm. He's got that music everywhere else.
1: So personality is. It will come to listen to somebody
4: he likes or she likes.
1: Uh, Gosh, do you think it might even swing back, like to what it was in that heyday, where might do? They might start listening to your blog. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> hopefully somebody's going to listen. Somebody's going to listen to us. I'm sure. My mum has told me that she promises that she will. Anyway.
0: Yeah, uh, and we should draw I, the line between between speech radio and music radio. You know, when we we're talking about this 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 massive decline and, and less relevance, it, we're talking about music radio because mm. you know Radio Four still kicks ass in yeah. its own way. Yeah. I'm on Radio Four tomorrow morning. Actually, yeah,
4: eight thirty to ten thirty. It's too late. Your blog won't have gone out by the time it no comes But I've been invited on to Saturday Live, which is a big thrill for me because I was blocked by the BBC for years, you know I wanted to be on the BBC like everyone else mm. for some reason I never did get on but recently with my book, I've got a book out which yeah. we'll talk about yeah, later w- absolutely. Uh, they've invited me in to talk about it and one of the things I did on Radio Luxembourg and everybody knows this, I broke the Osmonds in the United Kingdom, I'd <laughs> been out to Las Vegas, met them, interviewed them all and set them up for their arrival at Heathrow with an interview every night leading down to their arrival Okay. and uh, on this uh, programme on Radio Four. The other guest is Jimmy Osmond. Ah, oh, so we know each other real well. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. By the time this blog goes out, that will be history. It will. Uh, but it, for me, it's kind of like a big moment to be welcomed into Broadcasting House.
1: Great. Well, great. Now that's. I'm, I'll look forward to uh, to checking that out. So, look, let's. Should we rewind? Yeah, let's try and yeah. get back to the, the beginning of the journey. Yeah,
0: let's yeah. let's rewind the clock right back to mm-hmm. your your first memory really of music or what was the, t- the tune or the artist that really pulled you in and made you think that really affected you on an emotional level?
4: Okay well I was born in the north of England in a tourist house environment rather like Coronation Street. On Saturday nights my mum and dad must have been party people so it's genetic for me. And where was this? This was in Oldham, Lancashire. Uh-huh. And they went to the pub every night of their life. And I was an only child and uh, it was tough, I can tell you. I, I never, ever sat down and watched telly with my parents. But on Saturday nights, I'd stay awake and hear the clinking of bottles as they came up St. Stephen's Street with all their buddies. And they <laughs> came to our house. The pubs closed at 10.30 in those days. So they all came to our house with bottles of beer, crates of beer, bottles of gin. and they'd settle down in our little living room, and they'd put a radiogram on. Now, in those days, the music was very much Frank Sinatra, big bands. Uh, I wasn't particularly enamoured with that, but they loved it. And then suddenly the radiogram would go off, and they'd all start singing. One at a time, they had to sing a song, you know. Carry me, oh, mine, <laughs> Uncle John, you know, and then Frank would sing... I'll take you home again Kathleen to my mother who was called Kathleen and I'd sit there uh, just loving the atmosphere in this smoky room with this incredible uh, love for music uh, but that didn't impregnate me it was Elvis Presley who impregnated me as far as music's concerned and a guy called George Brawley who lived a street down from my street and he had a Dansetti record player this was one of those that you could put eight records on and put mm. the arm over and they dropped down one at a time and if you really like the record you just put one on and you make the arm stay there so it just keep automatically starting again and again yeah. and we did that with Elvis Presley you know Heartbreak Hotel and then his first album which was absolutely magnificent but I've got to say the one record that really made me uh, sit up and uh, my eyes pop my feet dance was Elvis singing Blue Suede Shoes
2: Trailblazers Tony Prince well, it's One for the money, two for the show Three to get
0: ready now, go get go, but don't you my you can do anything, Lay mm-hmm.
4: my you can knock me down, step in my face, sign my name all over the place. i do anything that you wanna do, but I, I, honey, lay off of my shoes, don't you?
0: On my Gosh, that still sounds so.
4: Where did he he get that from, you know? If you look through the history of music, you know, before Elvis, he had the blues, he had country and western rockabilly. Rockabilly was kind of influential. But the way he interpreted it, you know, he went on television and they wouldn't film him from the waist down because he was so cool.
0: Yeah, it was dangerous. It it was, was, he was considered hips were to be moving, dangerous. you know, yeah. and it
4: was too sexual for the generation who were watching him. And that just endeared him more to us, you know. Absolutely. And we all got in front of our mum and dad's dressing table mirror in, a, in their bedroom when they weren't at home. And we put brill cream on our hair and make front of our hair into a quiff, you know, and, you know, we'd turn our shirt collars up and we'd try and do what elvis did we'd have the record on and we'd be miming and he was one massive influence it was john lennon who said before elvis presley there was nothing
0: yeah in terms of youth culture you're right you know and 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 elvis embodied that that danger yeah. that I think is missing in no. youth culture icons right now and that is, you know, yeah. the, and, the, and the, the conservative government called
4: repetitive beats dangerous in exactly the same way but decades and decades later. But, you know, there was somebody before Elvis but he wasn't iconic like Elvis. It was Blue... It was uh, uh, Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley in oh, the Comets. Yes. Yeah. Came through a big movie at the mm. time, you know, and kids used to go to watch this movie and they'd break up seats in the cinema and that was the arrival of the Teddy Boys and... Yes. Yeah, that was... Uh, that was... Uh, The birth of a teenage revolution, really. So,
0: Tony, what did, having been inspired by Elvis Presley and, and frankly, who of your age wouldn't have been, um, what did you then do with that inspiration?
4: Well, you know, um, it it was going to Butlin's Patheli on holiday. I went five years in a row, first with my mum and dad, and then I started going with my mates. So it was the late 50s when I ran into wanting to get on that dance floor and dance and listen to music. Uh, and the the Butlin Spitali had a place called the Rock and Calypso Ballroom. But after two years, it became the Rock and Jive Ballroom mm. because that type of music, Elvis and Ray Charles, what did I say? Mm. Uh, all that kind of music had arrived. And when a track went on, there was no DJs. It was like a jukebox environment, but they did have a live band. Uh And... I'll come to a track now that I can listen to it a million more times and every time I hear it I'm in the rock and jive ballroom it's one incredible record it also launched the career of Armit Ertigan who went on to start Mm -hmm. Atlantic Records Mm -hmm. and he eventually signed this guy to Atlantic Records but he wasn't with them Now I think he was with with London at this time Mm -hmm. but what a great record it was the perfect record to jive to it was Bobby Darin and Dream Lover
2: Trailblazers Tony Prince Every night
3: I hope and pray A dream lover will come my way
4: a girl to hold in my arms And know the magic of her charms Cause I want a
3: girl
0: Bobby Darren, Dream Lover, as chosen by Tony Prince, whose life we are sound tracking <laughs> here on Trailblazers. Right. So so where did we go to uh where do
4: we go let, to next? Let, so? yeah, stay in Butlin's Betheli for a minute, shall we? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. On. I'm I'm like I walk in one afternoon and there's a guy sat there and he's he's polishing his boots. He's got a pair of cowboy boots and he's polishing them. These boots look really cool. So I get myself a milkshake. I'd never had alcohol in my life at that time. I was probably about 16 or something. And I go and sit down. I plonk myself down next to him and start talking to him, you know, and he's listening rather than talking back to me. And I'm saying how much I like the group he's in. He's in the resident group at Butlins. And I said how much I, I like music and I know all the lyrics. And he said, well, if you, um, if you know all the lyrics, lad, why don't you get up and uh, sing with us tomorrow night? We've got a talent competition. Oh, I said, well, I will do if you'll lend me a pair of your boots. <laughs> uh. It was Ringo Starr.
0: Yes! <laughs> brilliant! <laughs>
4: <laughs> and and the, did he lend you his boots? <laughs> the group was Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Yeah. I I heard. That okay. was before he joined the Beatles. Yeah, Actually, the Beatles nicked, uh, nicked um, Ringo from Rory Storm. But there you go. My mates and I, they said, you've got to go in for this talent competition. I uh, decided to sing Gene Vincent's Bop a lulu And... Yeah. Um, <laughs> On the night, my mates threw a couple of whiskies down my neck to give me Dutch courage. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. first drink in my life. <laughs> and uh, I'm side of stage now, right? And uh, Rory Storms introduced one person. Then he comes over to me, and Ringo's looking at me. and points his drumsticks to the side of the stage. Got a pair of cowboy boots there, <laughs> so he's he's brought them for me. You see? Oh, fantastic!
0: Pays to be cheeky, doesn't it? Sometimes. Yeah,
4: yeah. Well, I was cheeky. You know, I was a cheeky chappy. Yeah. And uh, Rory Storm says to me. What key? I said, oh, well, he said, what song? I said, "Bebopaloo Wopolulu, Gene Vincent's "Bebopaloo He said, what key? And I said, well, I'm in row four, uh, number 23. <laughs> no, 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 no. What key for your chalet? What key are you singing to?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I presume you I didn't knew, have a clue.
4: I knew nothing about keys. I said, you choose it, Rory. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whiskey talking, <laughs> you know. He said, well, do it in C. Okay, I says. I'll go and put the cowboy boots on. All right, so Rory introduces me. Tommy. I was Tommy then. I wasn't Tony. Here's Tommy from Oldham. He's going to sing Bebop. Well, bebop lulu And the band starts playing. Now, Gene Vincent in those days was a great rock and roll man, and he, he got to the middle eight, and the microphone would be stand would be forty five degrees from his body, yeah. and when he got to the middle eight, he'd look at the lead guitar, and say go, and he'd kick his right leg up and put it over the mic, and finish up with the micro stand behind his back, swaying in rhythm with the the group, and it was a fabulous trick, and I pra- practiced this with broomsticks in my mum and dad's bedroom, bedroom mm, so mm, many times, mm. I'm, I'm going to do it, right, I'm going to really <laughs> blow this audience away, <laughs> so we get to the middle eightness, and I point to Johnny Guitari was called, the lead guitarist, go Johnny, and I kick my leg up And the boot came flying off, (laughs) landed on the head of a teddy boy. I didn't get my leg over the mic stand and I fell off the bloody stage. (laughs) With the mic booming everywhere. Well, the band couldn't play. The band couldn't play. Uh, Ringo's head hit the side drum. Johnny Guitar fell on the floor. Rory Storm's crying with laughter and so had the audience. (laughs) And this was the first time in my life I'd seen an audience who liked something I'd done. Uh And it really is addictive so you got that. Was
0: your first buzz of the crowd yeah, it wasn't was
4: like it? a standing ovation or anything like that but I made them all laugh and cheer well that's <laughs> yeah. it a reaction is a reaction Tony yeah. that is it so and then you- what happened my life changed there and then a bunch of guys came over to me we're from Oldham we're just forming a group would you like to be our singer I said well if you're that mad why not So before you cocked
0: up your your microphone move, you you must have been singing all right. I must have been, yeah. (laughs) Your game must have been strong. Yeah, it
4: wasn't bad, you know. You can hold the tune. Well, I sang with them for two years after that, doing all the hits of the day, you know. Um, And unfortunately we got offered a season at Butlins and the boys, the group was called the Jasons. Uh, And we became pretty popular. We chopped the bill on Engelbert Humperdinck on one occasion. (laughs) Which which was a big thing. He was called Mm. Jerry Dorsey then though. Mm. But anyway, we don't want to talk about Englebert Humperdinck. Um, It was just such a great life, but I wasn't doing it full time. I was an apprentice toolmaker in oily overalls during the day. Mm. And at night I'd put on the uh, gold llama suit and, I become a mini Elvis Presley. Did you actually
1: have a gold
0: arm? I suit? did. Yeah, I
4: had one made just like Elvis' go, gold. Have you got th- one? <laughs> I
0: won one. I want, <laughs> I want Tony's season, one. Festival season, yeah. you secret, know, ga- it's... secret Garden Party. That's yeah. absolutely perfect. So, so Tony, did you tell your 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 oily workmates about your secret
4: second life? There's or? no secret about it. You know, so you, well, you I, were, I you sang were... all day in the, oh, in the okay. factory. You so know, loud and yeah, proud. They loved it. There was a guy who used to sing opera, and I'd sing rock and roll. We were competitive. <laughs> <laughs> Different generations but anyway um two years went by and we we were such a great and formidable group really I've got to say I wasn't the only singer there was another guy who sang as well but it was a really tight unit and we were offered a season at Butlins so I could turn professional back in the engineering but none of the other boys would one wanted to stay a plumber One wanted to stay uh, an accountant and the other one worked for the Fire Brigade and they weren't going to pack in their day jobs for a season at Butlins. Right. So I packed in the group. I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go solo. So for a little while, I did the clubs of Manchester as a solo singer. I played a bit of rhythm guitar at that point. And then one night... A new ballroom opened in Oldham. They weren't called clubs yet. They were called discotheques, the small ones. But the big ones, the meccas and the top ranks, were still called ballrooms. And they were opening a new one in my hometown called the Top Rank Astoria. And I went down there, and I'm stood at the bar, and this guy comes over, who I knew from a residence that we'd added another ballroom, Johnny Francis. And he says, ''What are you doing, Tommy?'' And I said, I've gone solo. The Jasons have broke up. They wouldn't turn professional. He said, I'm looking for a male vocalist. He's got a 15-piece orchestra behind us, right? And he wants me to be his singer. (laughs) There was no hesitation. The next day I went into work and handed him my notice. (laughs) I burned my overalls and I walked out a free man. (laughs) I bet bet (laughs) they caught
0: fire very easily.
4: (laughs) Yeah. So now I'm getting paid a proper wage. I'm singing with a 15-piece band. I didn't like singing with them as much as I like singing with the Jasons. I've mm. never really got on well with people who read the read the notes. Mm. to me, it's too conservative, it's too perfect. Mm. yeah, whereas rock and roll playing a few wrong notes on the guitars, the drummer messing up every now and then. there's something more raunchy about a lot. It's more human, group. isn't it? It's
0: more human, yeah. isn't it? You know yeah. you talked about radio you know, becoming yeah. increasingly less human and, yeah. and and that's what it is It's people like humanity I think humans like humanity, don't they? I yeah. certainly do
4: yeah. It's uh, just a better sound as well. A group of from an orchestra. I mean, you listen to all those Frank Sinatra records. The the the, the lush backing. I find that very boring. Mm. I can appreciate what a great vocalist he is, and Tony Bennett and people like that. But I'm not drawn to them like I'm drawn to people like Elvis. And even early Cliff Richard did some great rock and roll. You mm-hmm.
3: know.
4: So there we are. I'm now a professional. Then one night. The DJ who'd been giving us a break, you know, every 15-piece band has got to have half an hour at the bar every night. And this guy who'd been playing the records, he never spoke in the mic. He just played records and he looked a bit of a geek. You know, he had glasses mm. on in short back and sides haircut and he hadn't shown up. So the manager came up to me and says, uh, I'm still Tommy, by the way. Mm. Tommy, would you like to stand in for him? I'll give you another £2 a night. You're not kidding Of course I would So now I'm rich Not only am I rich I'm singing with a 15-piece band And I'm playing all the music I love mm. And making that floor fill mm. And uh, so I became a DJ And within months We got moved down to Bristol To another new ballroom mm. And that's when the musicians' union Came to see us To make sure all the musicians Were getting the right kind of wages And mm. and uh, terms mm. And the secretary came to me and he said, you're playing records all day. I mean, this ballroom in Bristol. I was doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, lunchtime. Sessions at night, different kinds of sessions. Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening and Sunday club. The only night I got off was on Wednesday because it was a private function when they didn't have a private function so I was working every hour God gave me but I loved it I loved it I loved it I just couldn't get a better lifestyle you know well I mean the
1: idea of a, a club that's open at Monday to Friday every lunchtime you it's, imagine?
0: is
4: pretty interesting that, that's precursor to a Ibiza
3: well
0: yeah actually it wasn't, <laughs> it
4: wasn't a, don't forget the Cavern used to do that in Liverpool did yeah. they they opened then, at lunchtime every lunchtime. time yeah. that's
0: why you're here yeah. Tony ahead yeah. of the curve <laughs>
4: yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh, but well yeah we were in bristol the secretary came to see me said i'll get you more money you should be getting more than this yeah two weeks later i get a letter back saying it's been brought to my attention you're breaking union rules keep music live records are putting our members out of work because before records when the band had a break a trio played live music yeah that's Obviously. It was just live all night. I always thought that maybe top in Mecca wanted records because it was cheaper than trios, mm. but that wasn't the case. Mm. Gary Brown, who ran top Rank, told me years later, no, it wasn't to save money on trios. Tony he said it was because the people wanted the records yep. you saw how they floor filled when you came round on that revolving stage and the yep. band went off mm. they'd cheer me as I came round with the records when I'd finished my set and going round the big band came round they'd boo the big band it was terribly <laughs> embarrassing oh that's uncomfortable you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that was it um, I was used as a test case in Bristol yeah. Top Rank used me as a test case we had a big union meeting and about 110 musicians there yeah. We all put our cases forward And the case I put forward was Listen DJs don't necessarily know how to play chords They can't play drums But I promise you In their soul they are musicians mm. I think you should embrace DJs into the union mm. How else are you going to control How much music they play mm. If you uh, divorce yourself from the DJ industry You're going to create one hell of a problem So it was voted. I mean, Top Rank said, you know, the danger is if you throw Tony out of the union, you're going to uh, look forward to the band losing certain nights, uh, the big band being put down to a 10-piece. This is all coming if you don't control the DJs. But they voted, and they were all musicians in that room, and 100 to 10 voted for me to leave the union. And they were sympathetic and said, if you ever want to rejoin the union, a 50-pound fine will do it. Mm. I said I don't somehow think I'll ever be rejoining the MU, mm. and I didn't. Mm.
0: Wow! Well, you talked Story. about you know the, the the business of DJing and and their, their relationship with the business of DJing, and and I joked about you being ahead of the curve in another context. But how ahead of the curve were you? There wasn't a business of DJing then, because everything was jukeboxes, wasn't it? So you literally yeah. were one of the, you you were one of the very first
4: DJs in the UK. Of course, I was. I wasn't one of the first radio DJs because you had Alan Freeman Pete Murray Jimmy Savile Sam Costa people like that real icon DJs not one of them who set out in life to be a DJ they set out uh, to be actors or something Mm, Savile was a manager of a ballroom um you know, so that you had Radio Luxembourg and just very little music on the BBC. And it was called the Light Program in those days. Yes. What is now Radio 1 was the Light Program. How could they call a station the Light Program? Why didn't they go all the way and call it a Lightweight Program? You yeah. know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, where were we? We were, we were DJing. Uh, I'd been thrown out of the union. And I got on a TV show. Uh, There was a show in Bristol called Discs-A-Go-Go, which was commentated on by Kent Walton, a DJ Canadian guy who used to do wrestling commentary on Saturday and Discs-A-Go-Go on Wednesday night. And what
0: year are we in now, Tony? You're in now
4: 1960. I just remembered something I didn't tell you. We're in 64, and two years earlier, before I came down to Bristol from the top Rank in Oldham, I had an amazing night. I told the manager which groups to book into the Oldham top-rank, and I told him to book the Beatles on the strength of Love Me Do. And the night they arrived at the Oldham top-rank was the birth of Beatlemania, because Please Please Me went to number one on the NME chart that night. McCartney, in my dressing room, showed everyone a telegram from the NME. So I was there at the birth of the Beatles, really, as well. Well, which is wow. something you know, wow. Uh, but now back to Bristol. As honestly. Did, did Ringo remember the flying
1: boot did, incident? He did, yeah, he, he did. did.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I interviewed him a couple of times and okay. he always took the mickey out of me, okay. About it, you know,
1: yeah, I'm glad he remembered it. Actually, on the speaking of the beat, the, the um, the Beatlemania thing, there's reference to that in your, your book, isn't there? Didn't you hang out afterwards or something with, with McCartney the, with the guys after that yeah. show? Didn't, didn't
4: no, they all go no, back no, to... No, they went, later? I'll tell you what happened. They, they, were, sharing my, they were sharing or... my dressing room. I'd had to stay on stage. There was no exit off the stage. It was, mad. Right. It, was it was mad full. There were 2,000 people outside the ballroom in the street. And they weren't going home, you know. It was the most amazing night. It definitely was the birth of Beatlemania. Right. It had been trickling. Now it was really massive. Yeah, it exploded, you know? yeah. And uh, we went... Uh, we, close the night down, you know, told people to get out of there and there's all these bodies in the corridor backstage with the Red Cross trying to get these girls to come round with smelling salts. <laughs> some of them were feigning, some of them were feigning having faded because yes, they of were nearer the Lords and Masters. Mm. So we're in the dressing room and the, uh, McCartney introduces Lennon, who'd been in the toilet with a girl. He came out of the toilet and mm. Paul McCartney introduced John Lennon <laughs> to a, a mucker of his dad's. He, he used to know his dad years ago, whatever, I don't know if he was in the Army or what? And he said, and he's invited us to his house. Right. And Lennon says, "Have you got any cheese sarnies, cheese sandwiches?" Yeah. And he said, "Oh, we'll rustle something up for you." Yeah. So on the night the Beatles went to number one, they went to a little house in Oldham with Paul McCartney's dad. They woke the kids up. Years later, I got uh, a, a. a Facebook message from the daughter of this guy who was woken up with another couple of her siblings. And they were the first people to see the Beatles in that kind of environment. They would never, ever be... Able to be that social after this point, you no, know. And just- I, I said, "Did you get? Did your mum make them uh, cheese sarnies?" She says, "No, she cut up a piece of roast beef for them and made roast beef sandwiches." <laughs> okay, so that I would, I wasn't with them. I didn't go. Okay, all right, all right. So, um, all from the
0: Beatles. How do we, how do we get towards the crystals? Because I know that that it was a, a tune that was uh, that was. Yeah, Something to do with I, the period I, just before yeah, this that you want to play. Yeah, I've jumped way
4: ahead, haven't I, with the Bristol story, really. I should have stayed in Oldham because you are going to uh, want to know... On this blog, uh, what were we playing as, as the years flo- flew by, mm. and I recognise this as one of the great floor fillers. Mm. It was also the arrival of Phil Spector, yes. who uh, younger people will not know, but Google him; he's in prison.
0: The Wall of Sound, we all know him.
4: Yeah, Ronettes yeah. and all yeah. that stuff. He, he he created this incredible sound in the studio, and his entry was through a group called the Teddy Birds. Um I think. To Know You Is To Love You was was their hit. That was Phil's first solo hit. But then he started producing. He preferred producing and uh, he created this group called The Crystals, Mm. three beautiful black girls. Mm. And uh, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, famous songwriters, uh, wrote this song with Phil Spector himself. And whenever you put this on, it was one of the all-time great floor fillers in that period and it was Trailblazers, do run run Trail
2: Tony Prince. On a and my heart, they do run run, run they
3: do run run
0: Amazing production from uh, oh, Mr. Spector
4: still stands up today, doesn't
0: absolutely it? Absolutely, goes up yeah. next to anything. But that was a so that was a floor filler, and we are with um, a gentleman who really almost coined that term or that concept because uh, we're with Tony Prince, who is one of the very first, very first people in this country to ever feel the unadulterated joy that you get from seeing a thousand pairs of hands go up in front of you yeah. because of a tune that you played. Yeah. If that had just never and, happened and, and, before and, you. That had
4: never and, happened. And the thrill of hearing those tracks for the very first time, that happened throughout my life, you know, whatever, you, all the big hits, you know, even Sergeant Pepper's album, we DJs were so lucky that we could hear them first. And then... You know you you got a track you love and you can't wait to play it to your mate who loves yeah. music like you. Well it was like that on the radio. You just couldn't wait to be the first DJ to quick, play something to quick, the audience.
1: Quick question. So you didn't have any you would did you speak between every
4: single record? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah, I brought, in- I brought that to an end later in my life, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I knew that was wrong. I knew that was wrong, but that was what was expected of you. Yes. You know, but more of that later. I mean, the, the, you had the dancing type of atmosphere with the crystals to do Ron Ron. And then the Beatles were about to invade the dance party and people danced to Beatle records, mm. you know. And the, the the quite strange thing was even the Beatles... If they'd never heard it before and you were the first to play it in the ballroom, it wouldn't fill the floor until they'd heard it two or three times. People were strange like that, you know, even the best dance records, the the Supremes, the Motown records and that. If they didn't know it, you couldn't encourage them on the floor. But
1: that's been a, a thread through commercial sort of club culture for many years that idea that sometimes people will be like it shit play something we know yes but then but that re- <laughs> that same record you know three weeks you later it hear is, it. is number one exactly. and they love it but yeah. it's the same record but the fact that they're not familiar with it make sometimes makes people think like mm, not fast you know
4: yeah but uh, you see as the ballrooms and the clubs they start calling them clubs pretty soon now right. as they became more established so the the desire to have more dance music in those venues mm. grew mm. and that's where motown stacks atlantic records mm. uh, built their uh, catalogs you know mm. they were they, they weren't just great soul records they were great dance records as yeah. well you know mm. so it was a really good time to be around mm. um so I, I went to this um tv show called disagogo mm. uh, with a young lady and they had a camera break. This show was rather like Ready Steady Go. It was a live yes. show with with groups all around the place. Yeah, and they were, it was built like a cavern, like the cavern in Liverpool, with mm-hmm. arches. Mm-hmm. And you go down one arch and you have the small faces. You go down another arch and there'd be Paul Simon. Mm-hmm. And you go down another one and there'd be the. The Mm, Yardbirds, and there were all the bands. All the bands who were around in that period came to Disagogo because there was so few TV opportunities for them, you know. And I I became uh, one of the co-presenters of the show and stayed with it for about a year and a half. And I also started recommending to the producer, as I had done to the manager in the Oldham Top Rank, which bands and artists to book onto the TV show. Mm. And then one day I went to him and I got my cap in my hand and I said, listen, this is not a great record. But it's all right, we'll get away with it, but we want to see this guy. I keep reading about him in the NME, the New Musical Express. He's a pirate DJ. You've heard of those pirate ships that are coming to Radio Caroline? He's one of those Caroline good guys. What's he called? He said, I said, he's called Tony Blackburn. (laughs) (laughs) And he had this record out called Don't Get Off That Train. So he did, he got off the train in Bristol Came to our show And that's how I met Tony What a link uh, Yeah, I, And I, I um, found out who I should Contact at Radio Caroline if ever I wanted to join yeah. the Pirates And indeed a couple of months later Because Ready Steady Go was starting on uh, on A London channel and it was going to wipe Out uh, Disagogo because they had much More power and audience mm. So the producer said we're closing down in a few weeks So mm. I went to London to meet The Caroline people and Nor- Normally, uh, uh, they were just impressed. They don't get DJs who are coming from television. No. <laughs> they get DJs on radio who go to television. Yes. So they were impressed, and I got the job. Mm. And I started on Caroline South with Tony Blackburn mm. and people like the Emperor Roscoe, mm. DLT. And, uh, and this yeah. is
1: on a, on a ship that's yeah.
4: just moored in the yeah. sea. Right. <laughs> We've got to explain this because this is a historic blog and people need to know what happened. What happened was, as I've explained, we were very, very uh, starved of pop music on media. Um, There was this radio Luxembourg at night with lots of static. The signal wasn't great. It Mm. was on AM Mm. frequency. Mm. Uh, BBC were only playing maybe half a dozen records a day. Mm. So uh, this guy called Ronan O'Reilly, a lovely Irish guy, He's managing a singer called Georgie Fame. Mm -hmm. He's a very good white uh, blues and soul singer. And he's got this record out. I think it was Shop Around, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he went in to see the boss of Radio Luxembourg to see if he could get it played on the station at night. And Jeffrey Everett, the boss, said to Rona, he said, we don't play records. All our shows on Radio Luxembourg are sponsored by the record companies. So we've got the EMI show, the Decker show, CBS show we don't right. have shows where the DJ can play records okay. okay there's a little bit of that late at night maybe one in the morning but nothing on the prime time slots mm. so Ronan in his frustration he's leaving the office and he turns to Jeffrey Everett says, well there's only one thing I can do then isn't there and Everett says what's that I'll have to start my own radio station He said it in an Irish accent, but I'm not gonna do that. (laughs) So as it happened, Ronan's dad had a shipyard over in Greenore, Southern Ireland. Mm. So he went to see his dad. Next thing you know, he's gone to Holland and he's bought this boat. It's a Dutch ferry. And he brings it over to his dad's shipyard. And within a few weeks, the mast has gone from a standard size to 180 foot. (laughs) (laughs) And it's got a transmitter at the top. And you've got yourself a radio ship. He then brings it out to sea. He puts it down off the south coast of England uh, near Felixstowe. Three miles outside the legal fishing limits, so he's in international waters. Perfect, nobody Can't be done. can touch him. Yeah, then he loads it up with records and DJs. Of course, there weren't many English DJs who knew how to do radio, so a lot of in those early days, you had a lot of Canadians, Americans, Australians, of and they were the guys who taught us the trade of being a DJ, how to be a DJ. Mm. So there was Caroline South. And then he got another ship, and he ran that up to the Isle of Man, and that became Caroline North. And then a company called Radio London brought a ship across the Atlantic, and that became Radio London. And then you had Two Seven O off Scarborough, Radio Scotland in the north of of, of the uh, of the British Isles, mm. uh, and then the, even the uh, the the Thames Estuary where we've got forts where we used to put guns to fight the the, the Germans if they mm. dared to attack us. Yeah. <laughs> they were redundant now but Screaming Lord Such who people may have heard of yeah, started yeah. a radio station there which became Radio City. So it was all going mad, you know, I was mad. And then one of these pirate uh, fort owners got in a fracas with someone and got killed. And that was it then. The government moved quicker than they probably would have done to bring in the Marine Offences Act Mm. to make it illegal. By this time, I'd been on Caroline North for a year and a half. And it was just the most wonderful time. The music that was coming through, we're talking 65, 66, 67. Mm. Um, And this is freedom. You were
0: were getting... I'm interested to know, in those days... You, you know you talk about all these, these radio stations mushrooming up but um, and you've got the establishment sort of on, on the mainland
4: did you have the freedom to be able to play what you wanted or was it a playlisted station in the early days it was pretty well freedom and then uh, a, a kind of a playlist came up with a, a number of records on the A list a number on the B a number on the C uh, so the A get rotated more than the B's and the B's get rotated more than the C's same so yeah, system uh, as Radio 1 yeah, has now yeah Everyone. but it was quite an yeah. extensive list you know it was very generous for the D DJs, uh, and uh, to be quite honest, it was a pirate radio station. If we liked something, it wasn't on the playlist. We played it anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and if we didn't like it, we wouldn't play it. And we had our own hot shots and picks to click and things mm. like that. We chose our favourite record each week, so it was great. Yeah, and then the government moved. <laughs> Pick, b- did you say picks to click? Pick to click. Pick to Pick click. To
1: click. Yeah. Sounds, well, sounds like an, an Instagram precursor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it all is precursors,
0: and you
4: you were oh, establishing hot shot, hot shot yeah, was well, one. you
0: were establishing yeah. the model that commercial radio and BBC Radio One and then Radio Two followed yeah, later I th- on.
4: I think we'd been trying to emulate American jocks to to a, to a yes. great degree, you know. So we we did the British version of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, and and like you right. say often with these these lovely uh, sultry uh, tones of of the these Americans who yeah. yeah, but deep voices and great American accents and whatever, and like you'd, you'd hear these great exactly. voices, these th- oh, you know, Roscoe. We and had we had
4: Bob Stewart, Bill Mitchell. We had some really lovely Duncan Johnson, some really great low voice DJs. I was a royal regal rocket ruler. I <laughs> created the Prince's Palace of Peachy Platters, where nothing else matters but the good times. Now here's Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and all that kind of stuff. You know, so Tony,
0: so um, musically in, the, in this period when you're when you're on the, the this shit what was what, what's, the, what's the tune that we can play that, that might um, encapsulate that period or, or might sort of give us a musical window into that period
4: okay well I think we should stay with um, dance music for the sake mm. of this blog mm. uh, and you couldn't get better in those days than the four tops uh, but I'd like to play a four tops track and then right after it I'd like to play another kind of uh, uh, rock and roll band who were very popular on the dance floor but first of all how about the four tops reach out and I'll be there amazing song
2: trail Blazers, Tony Prince.
0: we were all dancing in here. That that was the perfect record to play at that time know, and actually you could play that at any festival at the end of your set and the place we, would absolutely we, kick off. We, so that
4: you wanted to juxtapose another I record did. to this one. I did. It wasn't all that on the dance floor, you know, we, we were still playing the Rolling Stone, Satisfaction and things like Jeff Becky yeah. High O Silver Lining. Yeah. Uh, here's a record you don't hear very often, which is why I want to play it mm. and show you, you know, how stunning even a white group could be to try and mm. make people dance. Mm. And in this case, it was Devil With A Blue Dresser on and good golly, Miss Molly, a medley which is going to come much later in our lives when we call them mega mixes. But here's a guy and his band doing it live, and it's Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels
2: Trailblazers, Tony Prince.
0: Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Devil, devil with a Blue Dress On, Slash, Good God, <laughs> is Miss Molly, as chosen by the okay. UK's, if not first, one of the very first superstar DJs in the UK. And that is a fascinating record, because right there in the title, you've got two titles fused together. Yes. It's a live mashup, isn't it? Or yeah, it's, it's a, sure. a live mega mix. A it's a, mega a, it's mix. a live mix a yeah. remix, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. This is something really culturally important, because it, it but, foretells. But it so was done
4: by a DJ. It was done by live musicians yeah absolutely you know? they did a segue yeah. in the yeah. middle of a song yeah. turned then it into we, another song I think they'd call it a medley back then although yeah. maybe a medley would be more than two tracks you yeah know? but anyway I, I was just had to play that to, to your listeners to show them that we're not going to be always predictable about what we want to play on this show well <laughs> yeah, right. you
0: know you're, you're talking to two people who've made their, 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 <laughs> yeah. their lives revolve around new music so yeah. uh, you know you're in, you're in friendly um, arms now
4: I mean, before we get into the 70s, which is a delicious time for music, you might just queue up question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 tears. But before Mm. that, Mm. let's just carry on my story after the Marine Offences Act took effect. Yes, yes. This bill that the government brought in to stop pirate radio... Um, it actually said if you're a British subject, you can't work on those ships. If you're a British company, this is what really killed it. Mm. If you're a British company, you can't advertise with them. Mm. And that's what really uh, sunk the pirate period. Mm. It came to an end. So we all came ashore. Some went to the BBC, which had just formed its new... Radio 1 and the reason it formed Radio 1 because they'd had a meeting with the government when it was decided this bill was coming in and the BBC agreed they had to start something to counterbalance the loss of the pirates Mm. and that Radio 1 was their effect but for a while it wasn't as great as it became later because they were infected by the Musicians' Union rule Mm. Mm. needle time restrictions so even when Tony Blackburn opened up that new station followed by Jimmy Young Mm. uh, uh, followed by the Emperor Roscoe followed by, you know, it was just a, it was a mess, right. really. Right. And they had live bands. They had Bob Miller and the Millermen doing Beatles, Can't Buy Me Love. <laughs> no, it was just. But that handed the gauntlet to Radio Luxembourg again, mm. which had actually grown in uh, income terms mm. uh, during the pirate period because what happened with Radio Luxembourg was before the pirates, we only had the BBC, And there was no commercial radio in Britain. Mm. So the advertising agencies Mm. were never approached, were never uh, coerced to Mm. advertise Mm. with radio. But after the Pirates, they'd been advertising like crazy on the ships. Mm. Radio Luxembourg inherited that interest in radio. And so they were making more money than ever because of the Pirates. So they, too, changed their act. When the Pirates came to an end, Radio Luxembourg put a live team. I mentioned that they were all pre-recorded record company programs. That went to the wall. And they put a bunch of guys out in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, center of Europe. And the first team was myself, Paul Burnett, Noel Edmonds and Kid Jensen. Okay, what that, year?
1: What year was,
4: that was this? I went out there in April '68. Ah, oh, right. Okay, yeah. in the '60s. The uh, pirate period came to an end at the end of August '67. Okay, and then you it carried on a little oh. while with Johnny Walker on Caroline South and Robbie Dale. They didn't last very long. Uh, but so, then... so
1: you had Radio One starting, and you had Luxy with its. With cool. its new team. With its new w- team. With a new playlist,
4: you yeah. know, no control from the record companies. Okay. And we hadn't realised that the record companies were plugging all the records. And frankly, we didn't care. We were just happy to hear music, you yeah. know. But now right. it was getting serious. And Radio Luxembourg became one hell of a station. Yes. And it wasn't just Britain and the kids in Britain. Yes. Who were starved of good radio. Mm. It was throughout Europe. Yes. They all had the same kind of problems. Mm. And their radio stations was too serious. Right. Didn't play much music. And certainly they didn't understand American and British pop culture like we did because we were in the heart of it, you know. And and this is what you talk about in your book, isn't it? You Mm. talk
1: about the way that... And it's actually a sort of double autobiography, isn't it? Unusually. There's there's your story and then there's a story of how you interacted and touched with with, uh, somebody... Jam, Yeah, who grew up in a part of Europe that, again, presumably didn't have exciting you know dynamic yeah. music on it, the
4: it was even worse where Jan lives he, right. he was in Czechoslovakia yeah um, they tried to get out of the communist grip yeah uh, Dubček was the leader yeah and he tried his damnedest but then the Russians brought the tanks in yeah kids set themselves on fire in Wenceslas Square Prague and the whole thing was like doused yeah they were back to square one they were strict devout communists yeah and these kids these teenagers living mm. in that environment mm. I mean I mean, we thought we had it bad but they had no record shops right. they had no shops that sold tape recorders record players they couldn't afford it if they had
1: so, so it was, was radio luxembourg was almost like a beacon of of hope almost. it was a, it was
4: a rope ladder yes these kids all listen they weren't supposed to if they got found out they get shoved into prison oh, and their predecessors their parents if they listened during the nazi invasion yeah if they got found listening to western radio stations they got executed so it's a pretty dire place to live you know pretty Secret police were everywhere. Uh, You couldn't trust your neighbours. If you listened to Radio Luxembourg, you chose your friends carefully. But they soon learned that every kid in class listened to Radio Luxembourg. And so
1: when you were in in Radio Luxembourg in this early era, were you aware of this, of how important you you were becoming in people's lives well we
4: certainly learned quickly that we were very popular outside of Great Britain we were all you know we had two days off a week and we'd spend those days getting on a plane and going doing gigs and earning money and entertaining people in live environments in clubs Uh, and uh, Scandinavia was great you know it had a lot of great clubs and in actual fact the whole of Scandinavia employed British DJs in Mm. those early days Mm. because they wanted their club DJ to sound like a Radio Luxembourg DJ so they didn't employ a Swedish DJ in a Swedish club or a Norwegian DJ in a Norwegian club. They all had to be British.
1: So hold on, was was before you guys getting on aeroplanes and flying from Luxembourg to Oslo on one weekend and then the UK the next weekend, or, you know, and then, in you know, perhaps you were in Belgium or something, was that the first time that there was, like, international gigging... DJ is going to different countries on a sort of wrote weekly basis or whatever. Yeah, because I can't imagine any other any other way that that sort
4: of thing would have been well, born. That it, was it, it, yeah, that's it, where it, that fire started. I mean, if, <laughs> if you think about it, the first discotheque was purported to be. Uh, in Paris Right That was a small club whereas everybody had vast venues Right uh, Now those clubs were really burgeoning you Yeah know, Especially yeah. in places like Scandinavia Yeah And while they had these English speaking DJs from the mid 60s onwards yeah. there was a guy called Alan Laurie who had a company called the IDEA right. The International Disc Jockey and Entertainment Agency and mm. he coined it. Okay. He brought all these English DJs, he yeah. was based in Copenhagen and he used to spread those DJs I think there was a point where had a thousand DJs working clubs of Scandinavia right. and he also then got in touch with us and uh, some clubs wanted to pay us a lot of silly money to come and entertain and yeah, great. so we did a lot of that but no I didn't know the Czechs We're in trouble. I didn't know the Czechoslovakians because we didn't get any letters from them. We got thousands of letters from European listeners, but we didn't get any from the Iron Curtain countries. Mm -hmm. And we just figured they can't understand us, they don't love us. Yeah, whatever, but... (laughs) Then one day I get a call from an agency in Prague. Yes. A government agency, I might add, which was run by a young guy who was a mad Radio Luxembourg fan. Mm. And it was just after the Russian invasion. uh, Things were sorting themselves out. It was going to get pretty serious soon. And he got me underneath the curtain before the communist axe came down right. once again. And I did three gigs. I did a place called Karl Vary, Bruno and Prague. Mm. And in Bruno, um, I, I've got to tell you, this was like Beatlemania. I mean, it was always great when we did clubs where it was Blackpool or, or Paris, you know, throughout Europe. It was great. But in Czechoslovakia. It was like the night the Beatles came to the top rank in Odom, the night Please Please Me went to number one. They were just... Uh, this was I, uh, the
1: biggest you, story in that country, that there yeah. was star DJs yeah, from Radio would, Luxembourg you, turning you, up. You
4: wouldn't get it covered in the newspaper no. or their radio, local radio. But it was radios. an enormous... communist, you know. They just had one newspaper.
1: But it was an enormous story and... All of that, it was there. It was word moment. of mouth, really. Yeah, you know, right. They put
0: a few posters around town. Okay. But interesting yeah. that it was. You say it was a government, a, a, somebody Agency. who worked for the government. I asked him got when I was you... writing
4: my book. Pavel, he was called in Prague, and I emailed him. I said, "Pavel, how did you manage to get me under that curtain?" He said, "It hadn't quite got t- too tight. Yeah, it had been. You know, it'd been great. We'd had the Prague Spring, yeah. which was a six-month period during du- Dubcek's move to make it." Mm. more westernised, more mm. democratic mm. and then the Russians came, they play played I mean there's a story in the book of Jan, he's now working on a railway he started a disco in an old railway station all the kids from the village trudged through the snow and he's got eight records in his collection and they keep having to play every one of them, B-sides time and time again with, uh, you know uh, fruit wine as he called, it. I don't know whether fruit wine was alcoholic or not, and then one night in the billet with all the other soldiers a phone call came through and it was the next railway station down, somebody had been been. been listening to the uh, national radio station and the Russians had invaded. The planes were landing in Prague. You know, the tanks were on all the borders and all the Czechoslovakian army were on the other borders, making sure the West didn't come in. They weren't bothered about the East and it was the East that was coming in to get them, Mm. you know. So when I went back to see Jan 30 years later. Yeah for a reunion night on the very same night that I'd been there. We started chatting, him and the owner of the club and a couple of other people. Mm. And they started telling me what it was like being a teenager during that period Mm. when Radio Luxembourg was an escape route to the West, Mm. when they all learned English because they had to know what those bloody groups were singing about and those DJs were yelling about. So... You know, I still meet people who learned English listening to Luxembourg who got static in the voice. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Uh, do, they speak, did. do they speak quite loudly <laughs> in the show? <laughs> I love you! And
1: then, <laughs> and, 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 then, <laughs> and then the voice kind of goes... Because <laughs> yeah, that was ways. actually the w- one of the defining features of when you used to listen to... Well, when I used yeah. to listen to Radio Luxembourg as a kid, yeah. it would kind of come and go, wouldn't it? On the air, yeah. it would kind of drift in... And and we had that problem sometimes. Like, when I was listening to you on the radio in the early 80s, um, and we move into this period, I'm sure, shortly, like, you'd play, like, a great uh, underground club record because you did this show called the Disco Import Top 20. Yeah. And I'd be listening to it, like, oh, this is great. I can't wait to hear what this record is. And you'd be going, oh, that's... Right. And you'd be like... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's tumble, yeah. you <laughs> like were in this- Bristol, you know, so that what? signal had to go right across uh, yeah. the country to get to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, 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 and, then, the and then you'd be, like, and then you'd, you know, you'd have back announced it. You'd it, be on to the next record. We're like, I don't know what it was. Yeah, <laughs> oh, frustrating. Yeah, uh, it
4: was the same down the decades. Every every generation had that problem. Uh, you're talking about the jazz funk period, which yeah. I loved. You know, yeah, and I yeah. did that show you mentioned from Groove Records.
1: We'll talk about. it uh, Yeah, yeah in we'll in come a minute. to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah.
4: But um, yeah, the reason that Radio Luxembourg signal had that study is technically to do with the sun. Right. And if there's a full moon, you've got more sun bouncing off the moon, sure. and that inhibits the. Uh, range of the signal. It's a uh, it's a signal that gets thrown from these transmitters into the ionosphere and then right. it bounces down and it spreads around in a big circle. So if you can imagine from Luxembourg to the north of Scotland yep. and then take a compass point and take it all the way around, mm. there you've got the coverage, there you've got the 100 million yes. listeners yes. tuned in in Greater Europe. It's exactly, and, yeah. very
1: exciting, very exciting. So, uh, right, we're into the we're kind of into the, moving into the 70s I'm interested in like the the birth of disco basically that would, would have been something that you would have kind of been aware of growing there, you know. So, sort of um, 75, 76, yep, 77. Very much what so. What was so that I suppose that was was that almost like a validation of of the, some of the stuff that you'd been yeah, kind yeah. of fighting for? Because you, yeah. you know, back years before, you were like, No, it's cool for a guy to play records and it's fine and it should be allowed to happen, and then come si- maybe 77, 8 ish the whole world was just... That's what the whole world wanted to do, right? Was, well, here, it, was it was... Here go his play records and
4: it dance. Was, it was Saturday Night Fever. Right. You know, Bg's, John right. Travolta.
1: That was the point that was, where... That was
4: when dance music really became... Came of age Yes uh, Became incredibly popular Mm. And in fact I was program director At that period Right I'd left Luxembourg Having lived there For nine years And I'd been made Program director Yeah So I came over to London Working in London Mm. Brought my family back Which Mm -hmm. was a big relief You know Okay uh, and I had to keep the station, uh, you know, hot and yep, popular. And, yeah, relevant. Radio 1 was starting to sound like a good radio station. Capital Radio had started, you know, yeah. Piccadilly in Manchester. Yeah. We had the competitors coming at us, you know. Okay. And we still had that signal, you know, that static. Sat <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so I had to do something pretty dramatic. Right. We were losing audience. Okay. So I went to see my governor, Alan Keane, and I said, Alan, I'm going to suggest something now and I want you to back me. I want to make the whole station into a disco station. I said, because <laughs> okay. it's really in vogue now. Yeah, yeah. And he agreed to let me do it as a trial. And that would have been
1: a brave but a brave thing. Yeah, well, it was because- a last resort for me. Right, I right. mean,
4: you, we couldn't stop that drip on the audience. Yeah. And it wasn't the st- f- station's fault. Yeah. The station was still great. Yeah. But the comparators... Comparison with Signals yeah. made it very weak indeed. Okay, So, so you said,
1: let's be bold with yeah. our
4: music. So we started a top 30 disco show. We yeah. made Friday, Black Friday, yeah. all black music on Friday nights. Yeah. We had the top 20 import show yeah. with those great jazz funk tracks which yeah. we played uh, and a lot of dance music programmes, but generally dance music programming. There was yeah. no rock anymore apart from, I think, we had a rock show. Uh, I don't know if it was Kid Jensen at that point. I think he'd left. Mm. But no, we gave it all up to dance music for a while. And then one day, Gallup Research came in to see us, as they did every time they did a survey. Yeah. it was We did one every six months. Because okay. you had to go to the advertising industry with your figures. Probably nervous time. Nervous. For, I maybe. didn't sleep the night before knowing they were coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, he came in and we doubled our audience. Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It was just an unbelievable success.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant.
4: me and Alan went out and got very drunk that night.
1: Great, great. Well yeah. let's let's hear a record from, from that era.
4: What would you... Well you know, you want to get into the jazz funk later. I asked earlier on can we keep one back for the early seventies. It's not really a dance record, but again it's one I want your listeners Great, let's to, know, we'll yeah. play. It's it? Question Mark and the Mysterians and it's ninety six tears.
2: Trailblazers, Tony Prince Two
4: minute teardrop for one heart to be crying Two minute drop for one heart to carry on Your
3: way on
0: Want to hear more of the music?
1: Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com
0: where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals. (laughs)
2: Trailblazers.
0: <laughs> Lots of us know, especially those of us in the business of music. Yeah. Like, we, we know that riff, we know that record. We just don't know the name of it. But yeah. the man who does is Tony Prince, <laughs> one of know, the UK's it's, it's first ever DJs. It's
4: very much of the Doors, uh, yes. Jim Morrison kind of uh, Procol Harum kind of feel to it. Absolutely, so, uh, yeah. I, I slip back into the Why 60s, not? really. Why and, uh, not? Hope but you don't mind. Sling it in. It's it's yeah. free. It's a free flowing uh, format here. So uh, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're
1: very welcome. You're very welcome indeed.
4: Well, anyway, yeah, there we were. We doubled the audience, that, yes. did, that didn't last long though, you know I okay. mean um it's probably a year we got away with it, okay, um, and then uh, were you were
1: you in sort of dipping in and out of club culture, for, you know much in that birth of disco yeah. sort of well, yeah. yeah,
4: okay, and uh. Then what happened was I'd been with the station 16 years. Yeah. And i just got cheated. They'd sacked my boss, who was a great radio man. He was Mm. the guy who was the program director of Radio London, The Pirate Ship. Right. A real great radio man, Mm. Alan. Mm. And uh, he'd uh, been given the elbow from the board, and I felt lost, you mm. know. Mm. didn't like where they were going, the new hierarchy. We're looking at satellites. Mm. The, you know, I just wanted Radio Luxembourg to succeed. And mm. I t- they just wanted to bury it, you know, Right. which eventually they did. Um, so I, I, I had a meeting with them and I said, listen, you've had a, a loyal lad here yeah. for 16 years. Yeah. Who, my family put nine years into living in Europe. Yeah. Uh, I've given you another seven years. I think you need to shake my hand with some money and I'm out of here okay but right. don't try and sack me they try they they brought in this one you know 3 3 sacking rule Right. where they send you three warnings okay yeah three strikes and you're out when I knew I had to leave the first one was as follows I'd invented this radio program which I think was the best radio program ever on a radio station called Where in the World okay and we hit a great prize really great prizes yeah and nobody knew where we'd put it it could be anywhere in the world okay and uh, the listeners phoned in uh, every half hour or so Mm -hmm. and they could have a guess and the DJ if he answered yes to their question they could ask another question okay but Minute he said no to their guests. They're yeah. off. Okay, and then so the more you listen to the radio station, the this more is you why, This is why it was a great idea. Yeah, right. they had to listen, listen, listen. Where, right? For in, more the world. Jews. where in the world? I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I called up to the, the uh, new governor's uh, office, and um, the warnings come through. You've been given free advertising to Harrods. What? You're where in the world? I didn't advertise Harrods. Yes, you did. You hid the prize in Santa's sack up in the grotto of Harrods. <laughs> Can you believe that? Oh. Can you believe that? Can you now understand why I had to get out of that place? Yeah. We gotta get out of this place.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, so you yeah, had to on. But, yeah. But before you tell us what you did next, I actually brought brought something along here. I'm going to reach off camera, just. Because fun, I had a little Lu- radio Luxembourg moment. So check it out. I just this is a an import twelve inch, and it's one of the first sort of imports. Sam, yeah, yeah, first kind of import twelve inches that I. Uh, uh, got in my hand and the the way that I got this import 12 inch in my hand from 1980 is I won it on a on a competition that you did no. on Radio Luxembourg Brilliant. when you did when you did the disco import, import show. show and the the question you set was was um we're looking for a new um like a catchphrase what would be a catchphrase for the station or for for my show or whatever you and uh, there was um a sort of uh, a, 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 an American phrase called, you know, called On The One, being like, it's on the one, it's on the money, it's cool, etc. So I wrote in and everything was written in in those days. So I wrote in and I made up this and I said, hey, it, you know, if it's on the one, it's on 208. <laughs> Sent it in and uh, won the competition and uh, you... Uh, you, you kindly sent me a uh, sent me a copy of KID, KID, music Musikiwango on uh, on a Sam import. So it's hot, take it to the top. Yeah, yeah. So that's a uh, little, just a little bit of personal history. That was what I was doing when I was. 14, 13, 14 years old, listening to you. And there uh, yeah,
4: we go. How oh, brilliant, how <laughs> nice. oh, brilliant. I actually meet so many DJs who used to listen religiously yeah. to that programme because, yeah. of course, it was the music we all wanted. It was it? so exciting.
1: And for me, you see, like, just being involved, you know, dance, you're playing all this cutting-edge dance music and, and, you know, you're 13, you're 14, you can't go, afford to go out and buy, you know, American import vinyl records or what have you. Um so so yeah the idea of, wow this came in the post an american yeah. import thing. Fantastic. And um yeah 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 and you were saying the that um you got the chart from Groove Yeah Records, Groove Records uh, uh, and yeah. Groove Groove Productions logo is on here which was kind of linked to the to the Groove Records thing. Yeah. And there's another there's another link there because Tim Palmer, uh, and w- who was um, essentially sort of running Groove
4: Records. Uh, his mother sat by the till. Jean, Jean yeah. Now, yeah.
1: Jean, this is a very interesting part of, of record store culture. So Jean um, was affectionately known to me and my, my best mate, Andy Smith, as the granny from Groove, we yes. called her. <laughs> and we used to come up to, to London on... Um, on the coach or whatever from Bristol, and we go around the record stores. And Jean must have been in her was 70s, 60s, 70s. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, yeah. but she knew everything about, like, the, the most new cutting-edge rap records, uh, you know. She knew of, what she was selling. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah, she yeah. was a deep, deep knowledge. Fantastic. But it was this person who was in their 60s or 70s. It was Tim Palmer's mum. and uh, And then, of course, it was Tim then who gave me Uh, The job at City Beat, out of which Excel Recordings started. And the decks, it just... um feel like i'm riffing a bit but f- forgive me and then the the technics decks that used to live in groove records are now uh in in my house so, so, I, you, so I, you nick I i no, tim, <laughs> tim, tim tim gave me them when uh when groove, oh yeah well, he did when groove records when groove records shut down are you listening tim yeah he, he gave me the he gave me the decks so there we go it's all interlinked That's you see oh fantastic wonderful.
0: well we've now uh, nick has, has beautifully uh segued us from this from we're going out of the 70s're at uh, 1980 was when mm. you got that record yeah, right yeah. so so let's leave the 70s behind and with that Tony's spectacular hair from that uh, from that period he had the most spectacular mullet in those days and you'll see it on the cover of his book <laughs> um, and so we come into to uh, to the 1980s and with uh, with Nick Hawkes brandishing this uh, this treasured 12-inch we we now kind of leave seven inch culture and we're now in 12inch culture mm-hmm. so so let's it now would be a great time to play the best not the best but the best for many people. But the the I think it was the highest selling twelve inch record mm. of all time, and I think yeah, it we'll still it remains the. So tell us about Tony about your relationship with Blue Mondays, but uh, with Blue with New Warders Blue Monday.
4: Well, I mean, I I had mixed mega that time, you know. I mean, it was just so incredibly different.
1: So so you yeah you'd exited from two oh eight. You've jumped ahead here, yeah. Eddie's we are way
4: ahead. I oh, haven't told you how forward. I got the idea for DMC yet. Oh, okay. Well, well, <laughs> well should we spin it back then? To, let's we spin, spin it, let's
0: it back to Let's let's spin it back to yeah. Let's let's spin it back to you getting the idea for the DMCs because that is you know that is a really important part of our our cultural it heritage. It
4: is, yeah. I mean, it's a well known story amongst people you know who know DMC over the years. Um, here I was play, playing all the dance music. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did the top twenty imports myself. And uh, I also employed DJs on the station. Mm. I uh, employed uh, Steve Wright and Mike Reed, for example, mm. and Rob Jones and Timmy Mallett, who's a great okay. mate of mine. <laughs> Good guy. Okay. Yeah, he didn't stay long, Timmy. Okay. He went to Piccadilly in Manchester and made a great career for himself. Um, but anyway, that be as it may, um, I used to get cassettes from DJs who mm. wanted a job on the station. Mm. And these cassettes had their voice on and their ideas and, mm. you know, the music. Mm. And I used to get, you know, hundreds in a month. Um, And one day I got a cassette and I played it in my office. There's no voice. I kept listening. I kept listening. went for another track, another track. There's nobody talking on this. I've got a nutter here. So I put the cassette on the corner of my desk and there it stayed for a few weeks. Hmm. And then one night I'm having a little tidy up and I see the cassette. I thought, I'll have another listen to that. Maybe it's something on the other side or what. So I'll listen in the car going home. I'm driving down the M4 with the cassette playing, and God, I get it. He's segueing. He's mixing. He's mixing in tune, in beat. It's just from one track to another. It's seamless. It's bloody beautiful. I'm freaking (laughs) out going down the M4. Mm. I get home to Christine, my wife. and like, go here, put the cassette player on. Listen to this. Mm. So Mm. I was really taken by it, you know, the idea of mixing. Um... And so I called the kid who'd done it. Uh, Alan Coulthard, he was called, and he came from Wales. And I said, I want you to come down to London once a week and do a mix for me. So he did. He came down and he started doing these regular mixes. Yes. The next thing you know, I start getting letters from DJs in clubs. How can we get these without the static in them? Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, well, these were great, weren't they? That I mean, I remember
4: them, and they'd yeah. have a theme. Typically,
1: yeah. it'd be like a solar yeah. mix, or that a, came that
4: came later. Was that but later? Originally, you know. And then Simon Harris, Les Adams, Paul DeCaine, yeah. people came out of the Woodwork who could mix. Yeah, and they started sending me mixes, and we started playing more and more. But then I got the idea, you know, when mm. the when the DJs started writing to me, mm. I went to see a mate of mine who was. The the boss of CBS and the chairman of the BPI. Yeah. And I told him, I said, I've got an idea here for the record industry. I can promote your dance records for nothing. Mm. I can give you free promotion. All I need is your permission to let us mix some of the music. Yes. So we had a meeting at the BPI, the committee meeting, all the heads of all the different major labels, and Christine and I sat there and preached the gospel of mixing and told them how, if they will let the DJs buy these mixes, which we will create creatively, you know, if if you will let us do that, we will send them a cassette of mixes every month mm-hmm. and a cassette of free promo copies. Okay. But I will only put a three minute sample of your record on. Yes. You at the moment are sending all the DJs. DJs in the clubs of this country a 12 inch record Mm -hmm. you've lost the money, you're maintaining a dance department Mm -hmm. and you're losing money every time you send them a 12 inch Mm -hmm. if I send them a cassette with tracks they like Mm -hmm. and it's a 3 minute sample, they'll go out and buy the 12 inch and in actual fact, I've got to tell you because of this mixing thing that Mm. we're starting here Mm. they might even buy 2 tracks Mm 2 12 inches, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. because they want to mix from one into the other, the B-dub side might come in and so on, and they bought it and I got a license, the first in the world there'd been all these under under the counter uh, mm. cassettes that uh, yeah. moody record shops were selling yeah. we put an end to all that we mm. made it legal to to sell mixes mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so uh, yeah that was it um i i i, I suppose also a precursor was uh, stars on 45 yeah there was know, a couple of that his, was,
1: well and there were the american 12 inch yeah. sort of medley odds, odds and
4: sods i think medley kind
1: of things yeah, yeah.
4: So there were a few precursors to the thing and uh, but the whole thing uh, we uh, we had to now get a, there were no internet then so you no. couldn't, you couldn't uh, Google all the DJs of the country. No, um, I begged and stole mailing lists from my mates at record companies. You yep. know, but that wasn't easy either because yep. they were very protective of their little uh, yep. list of DJs and yep. clubs. So I went down to Slough Rec- uh, to Slough Library and I, I copied all the yellow pages of disco addresses, uh, mobile DJs, everything, yep. and we spent Christmas in. My house, packing away sample cassettes of DMC, mm. uh, and then on January the second, the DJs of the Great British Isles received this freebie. Which um, year? Which year? Do uh, we this in? was eighty uh, three. Right, and
0: so at that time what did DMC stand for? Was it Disco Mixing
4: Club? It was, and then the show on the air was called Disco Mix Club You're listening to the Disco Mix Club, you know Mm. Mm. That was part of my deal you know, they gave me a wedge of money to leave the station, Mm. and the deal was I'd stay with them for a year pre-recording the Disco Mix Club show. That was my deal Yes, Uh, So that was very healthy for the club to get promotion, because of course, as you know, as I explained, Luxembourg playing this music, plugging Disco Mix Club, come on DJs, join the club. Here's the address: PO Box 89. So, yeah, yeah. the European DJs were listening as yeah, well. Yeah, you had a massive so, yeah. so pool of the- within, within within months. Uh, we moved from cassette to records. Yeah, that was quite controversial. Morgan Khan uh, went on the front page of Music Week saying, "I was a cancer for the industry. I would do more harm than good." That was the guy who ran the Street sounds Street Beat or whatever it was called Street Sounds compilation
1: street albums sounds, yeah. like
0: right. Electro yeah. One and Two. I was you know, very which, disappointed. Non mixed compilations. So yeah, you so, were just so, you so, were just, so, you yeah, just in, yeah. yeah. Actually,
1: some of them were mixed. I mean, oh, were they? But yeah, but yeah. I guess it was he was very much uh, all about selling. That wasn't
4: mixed until after we started it. Though. Ah, there you yeah. go. He no, was very much about he did selling. compilations, compilations, compilations. Yeah. Oh, of those top 20 imports that you heard me playing at Luxembourg Morgan capitalised on that by licensing them in you see yes 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 so I was very disappointed he got a meeting together with all the record promotion guys uh, in his office and he said to them you've really got to boycott this right and they all ignored him Mm. because they knew how powerful DMC had become Mm -hmm. we had every DJ in our hands you know supporting the club yes and of course the other power tool we had, we didn't just send them the cassettes. We sent them a magazine, which we called Mix Mag. Yes, and that grew into the bible for club culture. Yes, uh, it was like a tidal wave, Mix Mag. Yes, uh, more than the mixing, really. It just uh, established the, uh, you know, the superstar DJs, the Oakenfels, the Sashes, you it know, did. all the big names, the big name acts. New yeah, Order, you yeah, know, Prodigy. Yeah, they yeah, all got, yeah. If you got on the cover of Mix Mag, you'd arrived, you know. Yes, definitely. But, but in the early days, we were putting on the cover the people who were in the mix. Yeah. So we started with Shalimar, okay. which was a, a mix, and then we did uh, Cool and the Gang. Yeah. Uh, and then we did, uh, I think we did Michael Jackson. So we started in February, March... April, we did the Michael Jackson mega mix, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which which really landed us. You know, it's the greatest mix ever done by a DJ. Mm. Alan did this. Mm. Uh, And it was so good. I mean, everybody in the country wanted the Michael Jackson mega mix. Mm. And the other thing we were giving to DJs in clubs and the club owners, for the first time in history, we were giving them something their customers couldn't buy. They could only hear and dance to it if they came to that club. Yes. So it was a great tool for the DJ industry and the club industry. And then Ronnie Fisher from uh, Epic Records, who allowed me to do this mix, uh, called me into London to his Epic Records office. He said, "Tony, I'm in big trouble here." Right behind him, he's got. He must have had about. 300 Michael Jackson Mega Mixes. We'd given him permission to do a promo copy because mm-hmm. it was so popular. Mm-hmm. So he could send it out to different DJs who maybe weren't members of DMC. Yeah. I looked on that as a promotion and sure. he'd been so kind to let us do it. I said, mm-hmm. yeah, go on, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't charge him, in other words. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I'm in real trouble. He said, I've got to bin all these. I've got to burn every one of them. What? He said, yep, Michael Jackson didn't get asked permission. And I'm in big trouble. I should have gone to Michael before I did this. He said, so I've got to burn them all. What? Wow,
0: he was that much in control. That's interesting.
4: Yeah, he was. I don't know if it was him in control or his manager or the record label in America. Yeah. Maybe. But the word came back to Ronnie Fisher, the promotion manager for yeah. Epic Records, that, you know, he should have asked Michael's permission, then it would have been okay. Mm. But because he hasn't, he has to get rid of them all. Mm. I've still got four in my record library. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I've probably got one did, somewhere. But so did, did he burn them all? He or did, he, he, did yeah. he, he did, except he the, to, the four his you His job got. was online. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Wow. He,
4: he was being watched. You know, he had to take them somewhere where they would officially report that they'd been... Destroyed. Mm-hmm. What well, a shame, what a shame. Well, we're, we're at
0: 1983, now can I play New Order? <laughs> I thought you were going to play Michael <laughs> Jackson Mix for a minute.
4: Yeah, let's play New Order.
2: Trailblazers, Tony Prince.
3: How old does it feel to like you?
0: Really listen to this record now without uh, referring to and bigging up one of our former guests on uh, on Trailblazers, Mr. Mike Pickering, who of course <laughs> was uh, resident um, at the the main club that broke the this has, this, this incredible ended. record in yeah. the Hacienda. Yeah, so this is what was happening in the clubs, but. Of course, we're in we're in promo land now, really. You know, with you starting DMC and 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 inventing the the, the culture of, of, of mixology, yes, exactly, which had never been a thing. And so, yeah. how did that then?
4: And you've explained that
0: the, the popularised massively with that with that Michael Jackson one.
4: Yeah, and we started becoming international, and we started getting international mixes. Ben Liebrand from Holland and. Uh, Oh God, we had uh, Bruce Forrest from America, Mike Hitman Wilson from Chicago, so it wasn't just uh, British guys, Um, but the British guys, we had a little team, and I kind of had the obligation to look after their careers, Uh, and I was finding it increasingly difficult to get record companies to get behind them. Because they weren't artists, you know, at the end of the day. It was the early days mm. for DJs to be recognized as artists and musicians. Mm. Uh, so I started our own label, the DMC record label, mm. and put it out through Arista. Mm. And the first release, we had a guy called uh, Sani X, mm. a wonderful Swedish-Greek kid who'd come to the first DMC DJ convention which we'd held at the Hippodrome in London. Mm. And he would uh, begged me to let him do 10 Minutes. On stage, and I said, No, you're not programmed. And he kept begging me, beseeching me. I said, Go on then. So, what he did, uh, which blew everyone away, he did a live mix uh, of Human League Don't You Want Me, Baby. Okay. And it's what he did with it live, which just blew everyone away. When he finished, got this massive, a thousand DJs all went away talking about Sani X doing Mm. this live mix and Mm. showing them what they could do live. Mm. Um, So, I brought Sani over from sweden he came mm-hmm. to live with christine and i uh i changed i built a, a, a studio where there was a stable and uh, next to the studio a little bedroom for him and uh, he spent every hour god gave him working in there i went in one morning and he'd got like about 50 foot of tape with splicing tape every two inches and i said what's that Oh, I said, it's an Elvis uh, sound effect that I thought would work if I looped it for two minutes. And this 50-foot of tape, <laughs> lasted two minutes, and it didn't work. So it was a complete waste of a night's work. Oh, but well. that's his kind
1: of ingenuity, what he was trying experimenting. So these these uh, mixes were generally like
4: proper razor blade tape? Some of them were, yeah. To Some make of- to make them perfect, they yeah. did actually use uh, editing facilities. Yeah. But they were the early editing facilities. There was no digital editing. No, yeah, no, well, well, no, I no able done. Done. turn um, or anything. This is a block, this is
0: quarter inch tape and and an aluminium block and and literally some sticky tape and a razor blade. That's what I learned on.
4: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, radio DJs knew it well because we used to edit our interviews, didn't we? Yeah. Like, you'll be editing this one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe but we should, in honour, uh, <laughs> any editing should be done
4: <laughs> with <laughs> yeah, Razor blade. I, I, know, do
0: razor yet. I <laughs> wouldn't bother yeah, if yeah, I were yeah. you. Try cutting a wav, mate. That's yeah. not
4: going to work. <laughs> anyway, I told Arista my first release is going <laughs> to be a remix of Tina Charles' I Love to Love by Sunny X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they... They'd given me a little advance. It wasn't a lot of money. Okay. I was going to release with them, I think, something like eight records a year. Right. And we had a budget of maybe a grander record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we, we were getting the label started and mm. my producers were going to be able to do productions in the public sector. Right. So out came this record. And what, what was magic about it was what he did with her voice, mm. which was one of our problems in the early days of mixing and remixing. Mm. When we started remixing, I mean, Adamant freaked out. He wouldn't let us go anywhere near his voice. You know, uh, Sani X, this guy who produces his first mix later in his career with us, he did a remix for Elton John, uh, uh, Act of War, a mini uh, Millie Jackson. Do you mm. remember Millie Jackson and Elton John, mm-hmm. Act of War? Mm-hmm. He'd done this remix and I had, I had to get it up to their office in London to Rocket Records. Mm. And I heard a bit of it before I set off. I thought, that's fine, give it me. Off I went and drove up, played it to them and <laughs> played <laughs> Sani <laughs> X's mix and the uh, produce, I think it was Eric Hall uh, the guy who'd commissioned us to do it said it's great but where's Elton's voice? <laughs> Gone. I said it wasn't on Good was point. it? It was only Millie Jackson wasn't it? So they knocked me back and I went back to Sani I said Right. <laughs> Why didn't you include Elton John? It was his record. It was his record label. Yeah. He said I didn't like his voice. I only liked Millie Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) This was Sunny. The power of the DJ and
0: the producer. Yeah.
4: But what he did for Tina Charles was he gave rebirth to her Mm. sixties career with this very first hit for DMC.
2: Trailblazers, Tony Prince.
0: Put an absolutely fascinating yeah. insight into into you know dance music production culture and remix culture and mash up culture—the whole thing. Yeah, so. that was
4: using a commercial uh, riff with a sampler and putting it over a new bed of music, and it just—it was just magic. It caught Arista unawares, you know. It entered the charts. I can't remember where it came in—something like number forty or something like that—and mm. they yeah. weren't expecting it, mm. and they hadn't pressed enough records to follow it through, mm. so it dropped out the charts following. I was furious mm. but that's the politics of record labels and we won't get into that yeah but
1: but, but equally at that time yeah it's the, the sample based records were popping off right left and centre weren't they so it was a an interesting yeah. time as as the record industry kind of got its head round the possibilities of sample based records often without clear and any kind of clearance yeah. Protocol in place, but then it, you know, bomb the base, beat this, or, yep. or whatever comes through and turns into a smash and it does have other people's music in it, but it's not cleared. But that because... was that was
4: a big problem in DMC's early days. You know, these guys would use samples over some music, mixing yeah. and mashing it yeah. with other people's copyrights. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we needed a lot of help from the record labels. You know, we, we got some very irate people coming at us. You know? Yeah. But the, the great thing about this was, you know, MixMag was preaching the gospel about mixing. Yes. And the superstar DJs were starting to evolve. Mm. Uh, you know why? Because they were good at mixing live Mm, and mm. they went to a lot of trouble to do little things in the middle of a track Mm -hmm. in a a live respect Mm. and we started the World DJ Championships yes, um, which we put on at the Royal Albert Hall three times Mm. Um, we had to stop doing it there because the record companies decided because they saw our success, uh, they would put the Brits on there instead of at the Grosvenor House Hotel Mm -hmm. and they told their promotion departments to not support DMC's annual event, Ah, so I couldn't fill the Royal Albert Hall, we'd been bringing Run D.M.C. Public Enemy, yeah. James Brown, yeah. people like that, Janet Jackson—they'd yes. all been coming over to get the D.M.C. awards, you yes. know, which made a very colourful evening with all the mixing that was yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, right. But the World Championships developed from a singles competition to uh, a team competition. So, so
1: hold on for for people who don't know, what is this? Contest.
4: What, mm-hmm. it, it's a DJ. It's, yeah, it's it's got two. It started with two turntables, two techniques or whatever. Two techniques, turntables, yeah. six minutes. Six minutes to prove that you're the best DJ in the world. Judges on stage. Yeah, the audience aren't judging. Professional judges on stage. Yeah. And, and off they go. thing. Yeah, and he and came th- in from all over the world. You and know? this
0: is this is absolutely fascinating because we we now <laughs> segue from the, from a, a disco essentially a disco mixing thing. Yes, yes. and then suddenly you got invaded. Did by by hip hop and by turntablism and by right. these guys in in baseball caps that could beat juggle and yep. could do you weren't just segueing from brilliantly from one record to another yep. or or using quarter inch tape like uh, like Sonny was doing yeah um, you were th- th- these guys were isolating beats and breaks and then switching between them and spinning back and doing these
4: incredible tricks. Uh, absolutely. I mean, tricks became very unpopular with the musician aficionados. Mm. They didn't like people doing tricks. I try to explain. When a guy spins round his body and comes back on the turntable with his hands, he's making it more difficult for himself. That's what a trick is. He's showing you what a smart ass he is. Absolutely. Let, it, let him do it. I mean, David yes. from Germany, who won twice, he did the hip-hop trick of all time. He got on top of a turntable with his hand spread down in his body came parallel with the decks and he spun all the way round and on the deck, underneath the deck he was spinning on, he pressed the start button and it, it was cut, cut in a groove and it said, and the DJ went round and the DJ went round and he just went round and round and I said to him, how many turntables did you go through to, before they all broke? He said only three.
0: So what I want to know is because there's, there's an urban myth around the DMC it's when, and it's come up and when, when, when Zinc was here okay. we were talking about Cutmaster Swift and it's. In my brain, because I'm DJing with Cutmaster Swift very soon at a Scrooby's Pips night. So apparently, and I did, I've been to many DMCs, but I wasn't at this one. Apparently, Cutmaster Swift did a mix with his bell end. That's what I heard. He actually got his knob out and did a mix no, with No,
4: <laughs> you're getting confused with Bad Boy Bill in Chicago. No, Swifty would never do that. He's too, too... Well, I'm uh, going to ask him next you week. You can ask him. I, I, don't think he, I don't think he knows if he's got a end. I don't think he knows what a end is.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad we but, got that cleared up.
4: Yeah, no, no. Bad Boy Bill did it with a, a dildo and his girlfriend's breast. Oh, OK. Yeah, and right. I was there when he did it.
1: And and here's here's an amazing link that we're, that we're talking about Bad Boy Bill's girlfriend. <laughs> so I went to a strip club in Toronto once. It's all in, coming out now. In the... In the 90s, and uh, this girl was, uh, we, it was a positive at tour date, and uh, there was this girl doing a, you know, dance, whatever, and she's, she's like, oh, well, how come you guys are in, you know, town? Oh, we're DJing over here, whatever. Oh, you my boyfriend's in the, like, the music industry. And, and I was like, oh, who's that? Oh, bad boy Bill.
4: <laughs> oh, Did you say amazing. Tony Prince
1: told us about your boo? I didn't, I
4: didn't, <laughs> oh, wow. but I
1: wonder if it was the same...
4: Who knows? Well, maybe not. We'd have
1: to. We'd have to. Maybe we need to get Bad Boy Bill on a. Well, we're going to have to get...
0: edition of Trailblazers to get to the bottom of this. We'll have to get Tony's uh, Tony's you know tune choice for the to, to sum up this period of the DMCs. But I want to share with you my favorite DMC moment when and I've seen you know I saw Craze win it three times. Mm, but, magic. But but my absolute favorite. I've always been about the underdog. I think me and Nick have always, I in, in a sense, I'm, all of yeah, us definitely. always been about the underdog. Yeah. And and for me, my favorite moment moment and 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 and, and it's, it's so me like this this, this record it, it was it was dexter it was in when you we were in new york yeah. in, in this big ballroom in new york and it was dexter who who uh, just started as dj of the avalanches that right. you know lots of radio yeah. listeners in 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 the uk know uh, as as their brilliant mm. dj and mm. uh and cut up meister and he had on on one turntable he had Um, the 12-inch of Killing in the Name by Rage Against the Machine. And on the right turntable, he just had a tone. Just... Okay. just a solid tone yep. and then he he basically did this brilliant thing where he he, he cut up this record and then he yeah. did he, he he did he echoed like the for example the the he changed
3: the speed he changed the speed the amazing, the speed. Yeah, the amazing yeah. tom morello
0: guitar solo yeah, yeah, yeah. he would echo that with the tone by yeah, 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 moving yeah. the pitch. He'd actually yeah play so the tune. he, yeah, he yeah. would play the tune on the tone yeah. and yeah. he was echoing all of these incredible things that tom morello was doing but with this tone okay. just by manipulating the yeah. tone so yeah. this was before the days of you know we all you know take a CDJ for granted now, but he was doing it with a Technics twelve ten yes, turntable. It was one of the most amazing things, and it was tune perfect, pitch perfect, beat perfect. Absolutely, I thought he should have won that night. Actually, and then actually the crowd, he he was the crowd's favorite that night. But of course, who won the Technics, that night? It was the first time that Craze won time. it, and because the, all the the, tech, the real technician judges who were real anoraks. Was that the year
4: was, we did it in New York? The world. That's right. Final? Yes, it was yeah. in
0: New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and absolutely incredible. And that was, he start, started a love affair with the DMCs, you know, that, that night. So, um, so, Tony, what have more to the point, what have you chosen as, well, as, as the moment?
4: Well, I've got to say, um, I've been uh, at the side of the winner throughout the event for 30 years now. I've never missed a mix, even, you know, in the early days at all the heats around the country, sometimes go to uh, national finals abroad. I've never missed anything, never missed a beat. Uh, And it was always my dream that these DJs would take it one step further and become groups. And so we started the team championships. And my dream actually came true with uh, a bunch of guys, four guys from France, who actually went on to win four times the team championships at DMC. And actually, they augmented themselves with a live band. And they've been, became, I don't know whether they are now, but they were up until recently, the biggest musical attraction throughout France. And they're called C2C. And this set of theirs made me cry because you know I'm an old rocker. Yeah. I love the blues, you know, Howling Wolf and things like that. I used to sing, da, 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 if you're looking for trouble, da 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 da, da, da Came to write. Anyway, they pulled this riff out. And the six minute set, four guys. Eight turntables, and it was musical. You could actually hear the whole thing, like sometimes scratching, and that gets a bit jumbled unless you're watching it. If you just listen to it, yeah, but listen to this
2: Trailblazers, Tony Prince.
0: So this is c2c like uh, tony prince said one of the biggest draws in france uh, four man team four times dmc world team champions is that a record is that is that a record that
4: still stands to this day I think uh, we've got a Japanese team who've done it five times. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. But, you know, the, uh, it's nice to listen to that, but if you watch it as well, it's on. all our mixes are on YouTube. Uh, we've got a TV channel at dmcworld.com or dmcworld.tv. Yeah. All the mixes are there. And they're all on YouTube. Just right. Google C2C and you'll see all their four performances. And that one is be- it's, it's better watching than just listening yeah. because you see what they're all doing, how busy they all are, yeah. uh, how coordinated, and choreographed, they are
0: incredible, um, incredible.
4: Well, you know that—that that to me is uh, job done as far as DJs are concerned. Yeah. They become a group. I think that's wonderful. Yes. Um, now. I've, I've got to just wind up your interview for you now by saying I pulled out of the editor of Mixmag mm. when I knew it needed young blood. Mm. I knew that mm. I was old school and I knew that there were people with opinions mm. who needed to now be on the front page of our magazine. So mm. I brought Dave Seaman in to be editor. He actually yeah. was working in the studio. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> he'd won a competition to come to New York with us. That's how we fe- met him and fell in love with him. And he became our editor. Yeah. And then eventually he started messing down in the studio and he met Steve Anderson, who became Yes To a duo The yeah. Brothers in Rhythm yes. Who went on to produce Carnie Minogue's first hit When she left Stock Akin Waterman, com- right. Confide in Me. That's and right. her first album, of course. So that was David Sorted. He was off into the wilderness of DJ Live. Yep. And I brought in David Davis, Dom Phillips, yep. a real professional bunch of guys to write up this magazine and make it something worthwhile. Mm. And they certainly did. Uh, they took it to 160,000 sales a month.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, that, so the height of Mix Mag's... Power was probably around that sort of was it mid to late nineties kind yeah. of zone where like was the the, front, the super club thing was that yeah invent- I mean, about
4: ninety eight was when I sold yeah. it to
1: Emap. Was that in kind of... In, I, was pro, I mean, that was probably invented, that phrase, super club thing, cream, ministry. Oh, yeah, ministry. and it, Sasha
4: is God and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, that was you a, know. A, a big, uh, yeah. a significant
1: I mean, front cover, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, had
4: Paul Oakenfold on the cover on a balcony with lights all around him working at the other side of the balcony. I took the photograph. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how budget-minded we were back then, you know. So times changed and the magazine grew and became the voice of the DJ, and yeah. I think it catapulted not just the DJ, But the the club brands, you know, it did gatecrasher and and all this. It
1: just really, you know, it was it was very important. So at this point, I was running Positiva when I know uh, you were uh, when uh, when Mixmag was, you know, smashing it. And yes very important you know so you had in the, in the radio world it was all about you know was Pete Tong going to play your record on a Friday night on Radio 1 well then-
4: don't forget Pete Tong played our buzz chart every week for many years yes that's that true came of course, out of the DMC mic. buzz chart yeah, yeah, yeah we provided until he wanted to do his own thing because he'd make more money out of, <laughs> of course uh, you know, <laughs> the essential solution no, he's <laughs> yeah, no fault are you so we've had, a, we've had a lot of fun we've, we've, we've trailblazed and that's yeah, why I'm happy to be so. on this show, and and also
1: with the we shouldn't uh, overlook your your compilation series activity. Back so to mind, now that's a definitive. Brand. Well, you know,
4: if we were talking all night, you know, we could play some of those artists we chose yeah. for that series. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you had Faithless, which is one of our biggest sellers. Yeah. Underworld. Yeah, uh, fantastic bands. Yeah, and the idea of Groove Back Armada. To- I remember that Groove Armada. Yeah, where does it end? There were about twenty came out in total. Yeah. And what they were, cause if people don't know it, go and ask your mum and dad if they got a Back to Mine cassette on the yeah. shelf. Yeah, it was uh, uh, these artists choosing music they'd play to you if you went back to their apartment after a gig you went back to their apartment yeah what would you stick on their favourite music of that moment yes and it was a compulsive series and the NME called it the greatest compilation series ever amazing I was really proud of that yes
1: rightly so Mm. so it's
4: been a good life and uh, thank you for having me and talking to me and uh, I'm glad you're letting me finish the way I'm finishing (laughs) now (laughs) because it's the way we started well we
1: we always ask this one question don't we this yeah,
0: is it. Yeah, with, every, with everybody, we just—it's—it's uh, it's really a way to get some a very a, a record that is very personally very special to them and that means a lot to them. And we ask you that if if aliens were building a transgalactic superhighway and, <laughs> and in order to facilitate that had yeah. to uh, explode Earth, uh, um, and what what is the record that you would play to them? in order to, to, to save them, the to planet to yeah. yeah just make make them stop, feel, to, to, to just make them think actually to make them feel these, cool. these 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 idiotic carbon-based life forms that are ruining their planet are actually all right um let's let's not uh, let's not destroy them okay. what was the what's the tune that would do
4: that well this tune this mix it uh, mm. wasn't done by a DJ it was done by some producers mm. for the Cirque de Soleil. yes and uh, this was on an album called Viva Elvis mm. well we started this show And thank you so much for having me on it Mm. with The King.
1: Yes, we did. And
4: uh, I'd like to end with this incredible mix uh, done for the Cirque de Soleil. Um, It's on Viva Elvis' album, and we've got it here now, and we'll play as much as it as the boys can stomach. It's (laughs) once again Elvis Presley.
2: Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Now, ladies and
3: gentlemen, for his first appearance,
0: originals
2: Trailblazers
0: Thanks for your ears we hope you enjoyed Trailblazers uh, we'd love your feedback so if you want to get in touch with either of us you can reach out to me via Twitter at Eddie that's E-double-D-Y-T-M or you can reach out to myself Nick
1: Hawkes N-i-c-k. H-A-L-K-E-S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, If you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together
0: and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer.
1: Just download the app
0: for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance.
2: Trailblazers.
0: Thanks so much to the first ever superstar DJ, Tony Prince, for joining us. And next time, DJ Zinc. Deezer Originals.